Okay, I'm pleased to welcome uh, Dr. Pritchard from the University of Edinburgh. Uh, he's joining us uh, between conferences that are happening in Edinburgh yesterday and on Friday, so he deserves extra kudos for that. And today is talking on knowledge and safety. Thanks very much, Declan, and uh, thanks very much for inviting me. And I'm, I'm, uh, special thanks to the organisers, Danny, especially for squeezing me in between all these other events. What I'm going to do is, uh, I'm just going to, there's a handout that's gone round, so I'm just going to talk to the handout. Um, and what I want to do is, as the title suggests, I want to talk about the relationship between knowledge and safety. And in particular, I want to revisit a certain kind of project that I'm signed up to, which I call anti-luck epistemology, and try and sell you on the idea that there's some utility in this sort of project. Uh, unfortunately, given the, that this is part of, the, of a project on religious epistemology, I'm not going to connect this to religious epistemology, even though it's something that I, that I work on. Th there's a reason for that, and that's that I, I think the big issues in religious epistemology don't really relate to the safety condition. I think they relate to other kinds of conditions in epistemology, like virtue conditions, and it relates to reasons and things like that. So I think that, that's where the, the meat lies in religious epistemology, not so much with safety. But, uh, but insofar as you do think that there's an issue about safety, well, obviously, what I say today will apply to that. Okay, so in the, there's basically two parts to this. The first is to revisit uh, this, this project, Antilock Epistemology, try and make a case for it. And then part two is a bit pedestrian, but uh, I think hopefully there's some utility in it, to go through certain kinds of cases which I find make people not... Uh, adhere to uh, safety as a condition on knowledge, and I want to show how with this you know, project set out, how one might deal with them. Okay, so first off, anti-luck epistemology. Um, the starting point for anti-luck epistemology is a certain, I call it intuition, I think really we should think of it as a master intuition or some fundamental intuition that we have about knowledge, and this is the, what I call the anti-luck intuition. It's this idea that when you know your cognitive success, and by that I just mean true belief, I don't mean anything special by that, is not down to luck. Now, what's interesting about this claim is that you find it everywhere in epistemology. You, know, you op open up a textbook at random, you'll find some statement of this, of this claim. It, it's obviously guiding a lot of our judgments about bunches of cases that are important to us, like Gettier cases, lottery cases, and so on. So this kind of intuition plays this huge role in epistemology. And one of the starting points for anti-luck epistemology is, well, if we do have this master intuition guiding our thinking about knowledge, then rather than just as it were stated and move on, we should try and unpack it a little. Yeah. And really there are two, two elements to this unpacking. The first is, well, uh, given that we've got this claim about luck in play here, we should try and say a little bit more about the nature of luck. Right, so that's the first part. Uh, I, I think that it's quite an unusual feature of philosophical debate that there, there isn't, or at least until quite recently, there hasn't been that much work on luck. I mean, if you think of the way how the notion of luck it figures prominently in lots of debates in philosophy, not just in epistemology, but you know, debates about causation, free will, and so on, uh, about responsibility and so forth. And yet often it's taken as a, as a primitive notion. So I think the first step is to say a bit more about what luck involves. And I'm, I won't be able to give the full account of that today. It'll take us too far afield. But I'll hopefully give you a flavor of where I stand on that issue. The second part is to specify the particular sense in which knowledge is incompatible with, with luck. And so here, I think you can delineate a lot of types of epistemic luck, lots of ways in which luck can interfere or be, or be epistemically relevant in some way. And the, the, the task in hand is to differentiate between the malignant versions of epistemic luck and the, the benign versions. So the, the versions which are incompatible with knowing and the ones that are compatible. 
And I think once you put the whole thing back together, if, if you do it properly, <laughs> you've got something that hopefully has some explanatory power. So for example, I mean, just to give you a sense of, of how this might work, uh, think of it in terms of predictive power. You could say about certain debates about certain cases where there is divergence in claims, you know, where people can't agree on the cases. You ought to be able to go back, and, and I think you can go back in various cases, and see how the reason why there is divergence between the cases is the cases are, are ambiguous between readings where one reading involves malignant epistemic luck and the other reading involves benign epistemic luck. So no wonder then you've got these, you've got, you know, these clash of intuitions about cases. Okay, so I'll say a bit about how this pans out in a moment. But for now, a further distinction I want to introduce here, which is important, is the kind of epistemology you end up with once you've gone through a project like this. There's an ambitious and a less ambitious version. One I'm going to call here robust anti-lock epistemology. And this would be the thought that if you could suitably follow through this project, so you identify an anti-lock condition through this means, which deals with, you know, all of, our, all of the relevant cases of which where we think knowledge it do, it doesn't obtain because of luck, but it does, or it does obtain because the, an anti-luck condition is met. You might think, you might go down the robust route, you might think, well, maybe that's all you would need from a theory of knowledge. And at one point, I was quite attracted to a view of that sort. So if you're already independently, for example, attracted to a kind of externalism about knowledge, so if you've already thought you don't need any kind of justification condition or something like that, so all you're looking for is some con external conditional conditions to add to true belief, to amount to knowledge. Well, then you might think that the anti-luck condition would be a plausible candidate here. So think about, for example, process reliabilist views, which they're not so popular now, but go back a few years, they're pretty popular. As they're usually formulated, the idea is that you don't get a Gettier proof epistemology. You've got to add some kind of codicil to them to deal with Gettier style cases. So you need something like an anti-luck condition tacked on, although it's an ad hoc tacking on at the end, this codicil. But suppose you know you had a proper anti-luck condition. The thought would be, well, maybe if you spelt that out properly, obviously it deals with Gettier cases and those kind of cases, because it's designed to. But maybe it also you could subsume the motivation for a liability condition under the anti-luck condition. You know, maybe it turns out, you know, why do we care about reliably formed beliefs? Well, we care about them because they're, they're roots to non-lucky beliefs in the re relevant sense. So you have something from an externalist point of view which would be an, you know, an adequate account of knowledge. I don't think robust anti-lock epistemology is going to work. I'll just explain why in outline uh, in a moment. The view I'm attracted to is a different kind of view. Uh, it's what I call here modest anti-lock epistemology. So the thought is that you have the anti-lock condition playing some, it's on some key necessary ingredient in your theory of knowledge. Crucial thing to emphasize here is that the the anti-luck condition is meant to be more than just simply doing the job that the, the codicil was doing in process reliabilism, as I described a moment ago. So there are lots of views where people say, well, knowledge is this plus whatever you need to add to get rid of Gettier cases. And you can kind of think of that as sort of like an anti-luck condition. But whatever we think of the anti-luck condition here, it's not just that kind of ad hocery. It's meant to be some kind of substantive spelling out of a condition which plays this role. Uh, and which plays some fundamental uh, role in, in one's account of knowledge. So that's what I want to defend. defend it. And that, I think that's quite important, because as we'll see, there's certain kinds of problems that can be targeted at the at modest anti-lock epistemology, at the necessity of safety for knowledge, which really, once you think about them correctly, they're not, the, the problem isn't the, the anti-lock condition, it's some other condition that's at fault. Right. So this will hopefully become apparent as we move forward through this. 
We'll also see, by the way, you know, I say here safety is a necessary condition. What else do you have to add? Well, my own view, which will crop up later on, but I, I won't be able to say much about it in detail, is it's a hybrid view. It's what I call an anti-lock virtue epistemology. I think you need two kinds of conditions on knowledge. One is uh, basically anti-lock, a safety condition. The other one is a, a virtue condition or some sort of ability-style condition. I'll probably say enough to explain why I have a view of that sort. Perhaps not enough to defend it, but we can talk about it in discussion anyway. Okay, so let's see this, uh, this kind of project in action. So consider, I mean, we're simplifying somewhat. We're narrowing down our focus a bit, but I think this is a reasonable narrowing in. Uh, take the debate about, between sen sensitivity and safety, as it appears in the literature. I mean, I think these days it's probably fair to say that safety's kind of won the war, although there, there are still people out there who defend sensitivity as the... As the the, the relevant condition, but uh, but in any case, well, for a long time there was a debate of this sort. So sensitivity, I'm sure you're all familiar, if it hadn't been true, you wouldn't have believed it. Safety, roughly, true belief that couldn't have easily been false. And I, I want to take both of these uh, principles as being basis relative, just have that built in. So I think I won't go into this, I'm sure we're all familiar with the reasons why you need to keep these things basis relative. So Two questions now. How do we decide between them? Uh, and also, insofar as we need to construe them, and they need further, they're in need of further construal, how, should, what further, how do we go about supplying that further construal? Often the way the, we adjudicate debate, a debate like this, as so often in philosophy, is by considering a range of cases. And it's kind of like you know, lining up pros and cons and seeing which view... Uh, once the dust has settled, can deal with the most cases, the, the better. So here's a bunch of cases to give you a sense of this. So we might take Gettier cases, lottery cases, inductive knowledge. I, I have in mind here the kind that Sosa, you know, that, that, like Sosa's shoot case, which I'm probably all familiar with. So, you know, I, I don't quite like the shoot case, actually, for various reasons, but it's a familiar example, so I'll use it. Uh, You've got a, an agent who, in a well-maintained building, uh, every reason to think that the rubbish chute in the well-maintained building is working, and they put their rubbish in the rubbish chute, so they have every reason to think the rubbish is in the basement, because they haven't seen it arrive in the basement. And it's inductive in the sense you've got excellent reasons thinking some event is obtained, but you, don't, you haven't actually seen that event for yourself. And then we've got a fourth kind of case which is a knowledge of modally stable propositions. So I'm thinking here of uh, propositions which um, uh, are not false. In, in, they're not, so they're true, and they, they remain true across nearby worlds. So they might still be contingent propositions, but just they're not, it's just they're not contingent if you restrict your attention to the, the modal neighborhood. Of course, the extreme case of modally stable propositions will just be necessary propositions, which aren't false at all. OK, so you've got the, a bunch of cases here. Now you feed those cases back into the safety-sensitivity debate and see how they fare. Well, as is familiar, with Gettier cases, they do equally well, right? Take, pick your favorite Gettier-style case, you know, Chisholm sheep case, let's say. You know, the guy pharmacies the sheep in the field. There's not, what they're looking at is a sheep-shaped object, big hairy dog or whatever, which obscures from view the real sheep which is in the field. Well, the beliefs insensitive, you know, have the keep keep the basis fixed, but have the have the fact change, have the the sheep that's hidden from view wander out the field. Well, of course they'll 
carry on believing there's a sheep in the field, regardless. But the belief is also by the same token unsafe. Uh, and indeed, the very same scenario exhibits this. Uh, there's a close-by scenario where the sheep wanders out the field, everything else stays the same, the agent can, therefore forms a belief that could easily be false. On the face of it, they fare equally well with lottery cases as well. So, uh, again, I'm sure you're all familiar, but these are cases where the odds are massively in your favour, more in favour than, than they would be in, in any normal case of knowing, and yet you don't know uh, you've based your belief on the odds involved. It seems you don't know. Why don't you know? Well, sensitivity would say because the belief's insensitive. Um, <clears throat> uh, you could so very, you know, the scenario in which the, the ticket is a winner is, of course, given the way you formed your belief, is, a, is also a scenario when you continue to believe it's a loser. Uh, but it's also unsafe. Uh, for the, again, the, the very same uh, instance that illustrates this, the scenario in which the, the ticket happens to, to be a winner, which is a close-by scenario. Remember, the, they don't do this anymore, but the National Lottery, the, the slogan was, it could be you. Do you remember this with the finger? For those of you who don't, haven't lived in Britain for a long time, we used to, the National Lottery used to have this finger. That was his advert. And the finger would sort of... All these people with lottery tickets walking down the street, and there was this big finger in the sky that sort of floated around, and then it would zap you. And what, I, what was quite nice about this is that this is, the, this is not the could of probability, right? Because <laughs> probabilistically speaking, it couldn't be you. you know, the odds are something like 14 million to one or something like that. This is the could of you know, modal nearness. If you've got a lottery ticket, then you could get zapped. You know, the gods could zap you, and you could be a, someone just like you is going to win the lottery. So again, it's a, it's a close-by possibility that you win, and of course, uh, if you do win, you'll continue to believe you've lost, given the basis on which you formed your belief. So you know you could you had a belief that could have easily been false. And then, uh, well, then we come to inductive knowledge. Here we start to get a bit of a divergence. Safety looks on stronger ground, although as we'll see, this, there are problems lurking here. Sensitivity looks a bit of a worry because keep your basis fixed. Well. Uh, so we imagine that the only thing's changed is that for some unusual reason, the rubbish hasn't made it to the basement, but the base, your basis for belief has stayed fixed. Well, of course, in that scenario, which may well be a relatively far-fetched scenario, given the way the case is described, you could end up with a false belief. So it seems you've got an insensitive belief, even despite your excellent basis for believing what you do. Safety looks on stronger ground because you could say, well... You know, if, the, if, if we take the case seriously, if it really is true you know, that this is a well-maintained, uh, I think it's a condo, uh, and, and that you know, it's looked after, there's a good janitor, et cetera, et cetera, these kind of things, rubbish doesn't tend to snag and so on, well, then you might say, well, it's not a, it's not a particularly close error possibility that the, uh, the rubbish snags. And so it, it isn't a true belief that could have easily been forced. At least people have made this line uh, in defense of safety. There is a problem that emerges here, though, uh, which is sometimes called Greco's dilemma, because uh, I think he was probably the first to pose it, or at least he gets the credit for it anyway, um, which is that there's a bit of an awkwardness now starting to emerge in how safety is dealing with lottery cases on the one hand and inductive knowledge cases on the other. Because it seems like the line on lottery cases seems to be something like, you know, we can't allow, you know, when we say uh, a true belief couldn't easily be false, we don't allow any possibility, even the smallest possibility of error in the modal neighborhood is knowledge undermining. 
But when it comes to the inductive knowledge case, the thought seems to be more, well, there's some possibility there. Maybe some, maybe it's, you, know, you could go wrong in the moment, but it's just as long as it's not too close, it's okay. But there's a bit of, there's a bit of a tension there. You know, the thought's going to be, well, which is it? Do we go for the stronger reading of safety? If we go for the stronger reading, we can deal with lottery cases, but then inductive knowledge seems a puzzle. Or we go for the weaker reading, we deal with inductive knowledge, but now how do we deal with lottery cases? Seems a puzzle. And then a fourth kind of case is modally stable propositions. So, as I said, the extreme version would be necessary propositions, and both principles have a struggle there. But if you restrict your attention to just simply modally stable, so not necessary, but just modally stable in the sense I specified, safety seems to have a particular problem. Uh, the reason being, well, at least with sensitivity, it will take you to the nearest not P scenario, wherever that might be. It could be a very far-fetched scenario. So it could take you outside uh, the nearby worlds and take you to a world that's quite, quite different from this world, and then you have a look there and see, uh, given how the belief is formed, what does, what does the agent believe? Safety scenario, so safety principle, in contrast, seems indexed specifically to your modal environment. That just seems like the natural way to, to read it. But in that case, then, if you've got a proposition which is true across those worlds and which you stubbornly believe across those worlds, it seems that safety theorists are incumbent, it's incumbent upon them to say that there's something epistemically good about such a belief. Right? Interestingly, I'm, I'm spelling this out as a disadvantage of safety. You could flip this and spell this out as an advantage of safety, and people have done that. I mean, in, in the context of skepticism, people, including myself, have made the case, well, maybe, perhaps this is an advantage. So take our beliefs right now that we're not brains in vats. I take it that's probably a, a plausible candidate, a very stubborn belief we hold. hold you know. uh, and if we are broadly correct, you know, if, it, if I really do know the kind of things I think I do, like there's a lectern there, I've got hands and feet and so on, well, then the sceptical scenarios are presumably far-fetched then. So we've got... Uh, uh, a proposition which are true, a proposition which is true across nearby worlds, and a stubborn belief in that proposition across nearby worlds. So we've got there by, by default a safe belief. You know, it's safe regardless of how we came by that belief. So you might say, well, maybe from an epistemic point of view, then there's something good about that belief. But a lot of people balk at that in the same way they balk at the idea that you know, just as like maybe flipping a coin to form a belief in a necessary truth, that there's something epistemically good about that. Right. Okay, so we've got a range of problems there. Some of them speak in favour of safety, some of them speak in favour of sensitivity. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I've given, like I say, I've, I've, I've sort of drilled in on one aspect of the debate, and we can bring in other considerations to decide this. What I'd like to do now, though, is say, look, suppose we, rather than just do the usual methodology and just throw in a bunch of cases and see how things fare. Suppose we instead try and do the, do the anti-luck approach. So suppose we step back and rather than just simply focus on cases, we think, well, what is, what, why do we, what is it we're looking for with an anti-luck condition? And, and bring that to bear on this particular challenge. Okay, so first off, the nature of luck. As I mentioned a moment ago, until quite recently, there wasn't much on luck. There's quite, it's, it's growing, it's getting, uh, it's growing exponentially, in fact. Yeah. We're having a conference on it next week, uh, so, which is, again, another sign. The fact that there's you know, a conference on a topic means there must be lots of people writing on it. Uh, 
my view is that we should think of luck along broadly modal lines. So uh, probably take me too far afield to get in too much into the intricacies of this, but, um, but the rough idea is this. Lucky events are events that obtain in the actual world, but which don't obtain, or tend to obtain, rather, in worlds like this world. So the kind of things that don't tend to obtain in your modal neighborhood. I say roughly, because you've got to, you have to do a bit of work on this to get it to generate the right kind of result. I mean, one thing you've got to add is some kind of additional significance condition. Right? What, and this will bring in a certain kind of element of interest relativity, because... You know, all kinds of events could have the relevant modal profile, but they're not thereby lucky because they're, not, they're insignificant events. So you've got, to, you've got to spell out that significance condition and spell it out in a way that's plausible. I mean, that's one issue. The second issue is, of course, fleshing out what's going on in the modal neighborhood to, to get the right kind of result. But let's uh, take this at, at, at a certain level of abstraction and, and see how it fares. So... Insofar as there are things said about luck in the literature, they tend to be of the kind to, of identifying certain general features that you see in lucky events. So lucky events is tending to be outside of our control, is tending to be um, chancy, um, is tending to be hard to rationally predict and things like that. Rationally predict ideas, Rescher, lack of control idea pops up in Bernard Williams. Uh, chancy idea is, I forget who says that, a, 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 compl- a very difficult word to pronounce beginning with a G, but I can picture it, I can't remember how to pronounce it. But in all cases, there are problems with thinking about luck in those terms. But if you think about it in the modal terms, you can, you can account for why you would tend to have... I mean, in, in no case, people are saying that this is... You know, we're, they're not identifying lack of control with luck or anything like that, but they're saying that this tends to be a correlation. And you can explain what's going on there in the, in the, with the modal account. You know, obviously, with the lack of... So, I mean, let's take the lack of control view. It, it's not meant to be a, a theory of, of luck or a complete theory of luck, and for good reason. All kinds of events happen all the time which are outside of our control, which are not thereby lucky, right? So you, you wouldn't get the entailment in that direction. Uh, the sun rose this morning, that kind of thing. But, but in general, you might think there, was, there would tend to be a correlation between the sorts of events that we, we don't control and, and lucky events for obvious reasons. Well, you know, if they're outside of our control, the kinds of things, well, if they obtain, they... I mean, presumably, of, of the events we want to control, the ones that we can't control, well, if they obtain, they'll tend to be lucky events. They obtain, but they don't tend to obtain in the, in the mobile neighborhood. Okay. Another, another way of going at this, so uh, rather than just simply going through different uh, views of luck, which, of course, I just said is a, a nascent debate, is via the psychological literature on luck and risk ascriptions, which is very interesting. Um, so philosophers until recently haven't said much about luck, but psychologists have said an awful lot about luck, or at least they've, they've done a lot of studies into how people make ascriptions of luck. It's a huge literature. It gets, the, the issues get run together with risk, and I'm going to kind of do that. I mean, I think that's actually pretty harmless in this context. Uh, but anyway, that's luck and risk. They, they treat as sort of interdefinable or interchangeable, roughly, notions. And it, it's quite interesting. So you get... Uh, one thing that comes out very clearly in that literature is that um, people's judgments about whether an event is lucky, and this relates to their judgment about, for example, things that they think are risky, relates very much to what they think is going on in the modal environment. I mean, to give you a good example of how this works, which, which intersects quite nicely with some of our 
natural cognitive biases is, let's take the issues of, about risk, um, and about people's judgment about modes of transport and how risky they are. So notoriously, people don't think that you know, being in a car, they don't, they don't think that's very risky. And yet, obviously, it is very risky. You, know, you start to think about it. You know, on the motorway, 70 miles an hour, there's not much dividing you from other people going 70 miles an hour on the motorway. And it's, it's sort of a puzzle. You know, why do people think that, you know, and it, this is true, people think that flying in planes is riskier than, 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 than driving in a car. Even though, you know, even once they're told about the statistics and how the statistics are massively, massively disconfirm that sort of view. But what comes across very clearly is that the reason why people have that sort of picture is because of where they think that the risk lies in the modal neighborhood. So they have a conception of themselves when they drive a car such that the risk in play is not modally close. I mean, there are two particular, there's a bunch of cognitive biases, but there's two in particular that feed into this. One is a very general bias, which you're probably familiar with, which is just overestimation of one's abilities. So everyone thinks, just as everyone thinks that they, you know, most people think anyway, unless they're depressed and so on, think that they have you know, above average intelligence and above average sense of humor and all this kind of thing. People think they have above average driving skills. Right? It's everybody else that's the problem. You know, they're the ones that are the good drivers. And a second kind of bias which feeds into this is what's called the um, locus of control bias. Where a mode of transport is one which you have control over, people overestimate their abilities to keep themselves safe. Whereas, of course, when you're in a plane or in a train, you're, you're not in control. Someone else is in control. And then you overestimate the risk accordingly. So when you put these two things together, you can see why people have a conception of themselves when they're driving a car, such that although you know, accidents happen all the time, it's not the kind of thing that would happen to them. It's not a close possibility for them, because you know, they're a good driver. They're in control. Accidents, uh, you know, whether or not they have an accident is largely down to them, but they're an above-average driver. It's everyone else you need to worry about, not yourself. And it takes quite a lot to get people to shake from, from those cognitive biases. And in fact, funnily enough, the, um, you have a choice now uh, when you have a point. I have no, no points on my license for speeding, I'm very safe. But my, my dad, amazingly, who drives like a snail, does, uh, did get caught for speeding in uh, Wolverhampton one time. And he had the chance to go on one of these courses. And it's very interesting, the content of those courses, what they're effectively trying to do is, is shake you of these biases. They're trying to get you to see that accidents are as much to do with other people than yourself, and also that, that you overestimate your, your, your ability to control for this kind of thing. Okay, so there's a wealth of psychological literature about the way in which we make judgments about luck, luck and risk, and about how what we're tracking there is what's going on in our modal neighborhood. And I think this lends support to a broadly modal account of luck. Suppose we were to, and I know I've given you a very brief account of this, but suppose we would now sort of feed that back into how, our thinking about an anti-luck condition. How do we think about it? Well, I think what we would be looking for is, is a sense in which what we want from, a, from knowledge, from the anti-luck perspective, is the elimination of epistemic risk in the very closest scenarios, and then a gradual tolerance as we move further out. Because, I mean, that's, that, that would match almost broadly what, how we think about risk more generally. So we're very intolerant to risk when it's modally close to us. You know, probabilities and all that, don't, they, don't, they don't have a bearing on our thinking here. What, what has the most bearing is how modally close we judge that risk to be. But as it moves further out, as more needs to change about the, the circumstances you're in for that risk to obtain, the more tolerant you become of that risk, to a point where you, it, it ceases to be a, 
a relevant risk for you. So feed that into, uh, into an anti-luck condition. What we're looking for is some condition which focuses on the modal neighborhood, but which does so in a way which puts more weight on the very closest scenarios. Now, I think if you think about uh, the anti-luck condition that way, then straight away I think you can see that, that this is going to favor safety over sensitivity. Sensitivity is taking you to the nearest not-p world, wherever that not-p world might be. But it seems what we should be interested in is what's going on in our modal neighborhood. And it's only safety that fixates on the modal neighborhood. Moreover, not only does this way of thinking about the anti-luck condition motivate safety, but it motivates a particular way of thinking about safety, such that we should, as it were, uh, put more weight on risk that obtains in worlds like this world. So let's go back to Greco's dilemma. Remember, this was the thought that there's some tension in how safety deals with lottery cases on the one hand and inductive knowledge cases on the other hand. The thought is that to deal with lottery cases, they need to set the bar very high and not have any, not account as any kind of epistemic risk in the neighborhood. But to deal with inductive knowledge cases, they have to be more permissive and allow some kind of epistemic risk in the modal neighborhood. But I think once we start to think about safety along these lines, the dilemma just disappears. What's the issue with the lottery case? It's just how close it is. It's a very close, it's a very close error, and that's why we're intolerant of it. The inductive knowledge case, wherever you might want to locate that error, it's much further out than the lottery case. I mean, given how the scenario is described. This is partly why I don't like the rubber shoot case, because I think it's underdescribed. Better to have a, I mean, if you want to get it prop, get the example right, you need to spell out in much more detail why this really is modally far-fetched, that you have this error. It's obviously implicit in the example, but it's not explicit. I think part of what's going on here is we need to make those kind of features of the case explicit. So we can weave our way through that particular issue. I think we also get a principal way of dealing with the issue to do with modally stable propositions as well, because notice what we want to eliminate here is error. And given that, that, that point, it's, it's kind of like an oddity of how, we f how we're thinking about sensitivity and safety, that we're focusing on the belief that P in the modal environment. I mean, as it happens, a certain way of forming one's beliefs, a certain basis, has led one to form a belief at P in the actual circumstances. But whether or not there's error, epistemic error close by, given that it's, it's going to be basis relative to the sense that what we're interested in is, given that basis, what doxastic output would arise in close worlds? And, and, and does that doxastic uh, output lead you into error? That's what we're interested in. So it's kind of, to focus on the belief that P across worlds, is that, that's kind of like a, an arbitrary way of thinking about it. What we're interested in is, given this way of forming our beliefs, are we at risk? Are we at epistemic risk? And if there's a close world, for example, where by tossing a coin, I mean, in the actual world, let's say you toss a coin, you form belief in a necessary proposition. Well, maybe there's no nearby world where you form that belief and believe falsely. But the, you are at epistemic risk. There are nearby worlds where, given your basis for belief, you're going to form beliefs and believe falsely. There's epistemic risk right next to you. So I think once we start to... Uh, think about what, what it is we're looking for in an anti-luck condition. We're led not just to safety, but to a particular way of thinking about safety. And a way of thinking about safety that gives us a principled way of navigating through some of these issues. Now, one thought you might have at this stage is, if we got this anti-luck condition right, 
maybe we should be attracted towards a robust anti-lock epistemology. Maybe, you know, maybe, that's, maybe that's all we need from an epistemology. Uh, I don't think it's, it's going to work. And, but I think it's kind of interesting why it's not going to work. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to give you the short version now. I think it relates to another, what I would say is another master intuition we have on knowledge, which I call the ability intuition. And it's, this is the idea that when you know, your cognitive success is in some significant way attributable to you and your cognitive agency. Now, what's interesting about the ability intu intuition, you find it hit all over the shop. Right? I mean, I, I have papers where I, you know, I list lots of examples of people stating this. But it never, often it's, it's stated in, either in an implicit fashion or it, it's stated, interestingly, as either equivalent to, or at least a consequence of, the anti-luck intuition. And you can kind of see the motivation for that. The thought is, well, look, you know, if your cognitive success isn't down to luck, well, what is it down to? It must be down to your ability. And if it's down to your ability, well, that must mean that it's not down to luck. And indeed, in some cases, people have just simply said, look, this is, these are two, insofar as they've differentiated these intuitions, they've said that they're they're just two sides of the same coin, or essentially the same intuition, or something like that. I think that's a mistake. And I think keeping these intuitions apart is, is really crucial for our thinking about knowledge. In fact, I think a failure to keep them apart is, is sort of like, uh, to be so bold, a kind of fault line down contemporary thinking about uh, knowledge that, that, that undermines our thinking about the, in the epistemology uh, as regards to this particular topic. And I think now that we've done a bit of work on the anti-luck condition, it starts to become clear what the, the issue is. Meeting the anti-luck condition means having a belief with a certain modal profile. But the ability intuition isn't just simply about a belief having the right kind of modal profile. It's about, a, there's a direction of fit built in there. You've got to have some, I mean, this is the attributability point. It's not just that uh, across worlds you've got you know, a belief and, and, and it matches up with fact across world or whatever modal profile you happen to fixate on. Rather, there's got to be the right kind of direction of fit between uh, your agency and, and your, your cognitive success. So you can illustrate this point. I mean, there's, there's various cases you can use. The, the case I tend to use uh, is the, uh, what I call the temp case which is a terrible name, because of course there are other temp cases in the chip, but anyway. It's, um, this is a scenario in which you have someone forming their beliefs by, uh, about the temperature of the room by consulting a thermometer. Unbeknownst to them, the thermometer is broken, it's fluctuating within a, a given range. But what you do is you set up the example so that you know, the, the, there is some mechanism in play to ensure, let's say, another agent in the room next to the thermostat, and it's their job, maybe their life depends upon it, to ensure that whenever temp looks at the, the, the reading on a thermometer, the, the temperature in the room should correspond to the reading on a thermometer. So what you, what you want here is the right kind of modal profile for the belief. So it's not a matter of luck that temp's beliefs are true. He's guaranteed to have a true belief, given how he's forming it. But what you've got is the wrong direction of fit. It's nothing to do with temp's cognitive agency, that, he, is he, that his beliefs are successful and that they're non-lucky. One of the problems with the temp case is that there's a bit of noise there. Temp is doing something right, after all. And I mean, I, I actually don't think this matters. It doesn't matter because what he's doing right plays no explanatory role in terms of his cognitive success. So I don't think it matters. But if that noise bothers you, then, well, there's an easy way to resolve this. Just have a demon case. Right? Just have a demon ensuring 
uh, that whenever someone forms a belief, the belief is true. So they have someone forming beliefs for terrible reasons, random ways, let's say, but the demon making whatever they believe true. So you've got the right kind of modal profile. It's not a matter of luck that the beliefs are true, so formed. Can't help but be true. So the anti-luck condition's met. But it's not knowledge, and I, I claim the reason it's not knowledge is to do with this ability condition not being met. There's no explanatory connection between the success and the ability. And so that's why I'm inclined towards a different sort of view. It's a hybrid view called an anti-luck virtue epistemology. I've got it on the handout. Of course, the contrast for anti-luck virtue epistemology isn't just robust anti-luck epistemology. It's also robust virtue epistemology. So the thought is there are these views in epistemology that think you can understand knowledge exclusively in terms of ability or virtue, and these other competing views who think you can understand knowledge exclusively in terms of some anti-luck condition. And the thought is once you differentiate these two master intuitions and the role they play on our, uh, in determining our thinking about knowledge, then you realize you need, the, you need a hybrid account. And of course, it becomes an interesting question then. Why do, if knowledge has that structure, why does it have that structure? But that's a further question. OK, so that's the, the first, uh, the main part of the talk. What I've tried to do there is it's sort of like an advertisement for anti-luck epistemology. So the thought is that we can, these debates about safety and knowledge, and indeed more generally about these modal conditions on knowledge and how to adjudicate them, I think there's a utility involved in stepping back from those debates and rather than settling them through cases, thinking instead in terms of what role they're meant to play, and that means thinking about the nature of luck, thinking about the, uh, the relationship between luck and knowledge. And I think that gives you a route through these sorts of debates. Now, what I want to do in the, the second part is just go through a bunch of cases that, that people have found persuasive as reasons not to think that, uh, not to think that um, safety is a necessary condition on knowledge. So these are cases against modest anti-luck epistemology. So the view we've ended up with, crucially, is not the robust view. And this is important when we deal with counterexamples, because the one option that's available to us in dealing with the counterexamples is to convict one of the other conditions on knowledge as being the one that's in fault. OK, so um, exhibit one. The, the first case, doesn't, this case doesn't go away. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't pitched as an objection to me, although it has since been pitched as an objection to my view. Actually, originally, it was an objection to Tim's view. Um, so this is Nita and Rohrbrer from 2004. I'll read it now, I suppose. Um, I'm drinking a glass of water, which I've just poured from the bottle. We're on page two. Standing next to me is a happy person who's just won the lottery. Had the person lost the lottery, she would have maliciously polluted my water with a tasteless, odorless, colorless toxin. But since she won the lottery, she does no such thing. Nonetheless, she almost lost the lottery. Now I drink the pure and adulterated water and judge, truly and knowingly, that I'm drinking pure and adulterated water. But the toxin would not have flavoured the water, and so had the toxin gone in, I would still have believed falsely that I was drinking pure and adulterated water. Despite the falsity of my belief in the nearby possibility, it seems that in the actual case, I know that I'm drinking pure and adulterated water. One of the reasons I struggle with this case is that I don't have... It would be interesting to see what you think. I, the case meant to be... It's knowledge, but it's not safe. So it's unsafe knowledge. I guess I don't really have the, uh, the, the intuition that it's knowledge in the first place. But you know, one could come back on that and say, well, obviously, that's theory-driven and so forth, because you've already got a prior view, and safety is necessary for knowledge. 
So it's incumbent on me to say a bit more about such cases and you know, why might people think that they're knowledge. Although it's not quite as clear-cut as other sorts of scenarios where you can feed in the malignant versus benign kinds of epistemic luck, I think this is one of the cases where you can at least make some, get some purchase on the debate here. So there's a way of reading water, this case, such that it would be knowledge because it only involves benign epistemic luck. That is, you could think of it, and I suspect the only charitable way I can think of it and make sense of it, is as exhibiting what I call, elsewhere called, evidential epistemic luck. So evidential epistemic luck is meant to be benign. It can be a matter of luck that one has the evidence that one does, and yet still one can go on to gain knowledge on the basis of that evidence. Right? So it's not knowledge undermining, necessarily. Very different from the kinds of veritic sorts of epistemic luck which do undermine knowledge uh, that you get in Gettier cases. So consider this scenario from um, Peter Unger. Uh, purely by luck. Unger actually equates luck and accident, which I think so. I'm just doing it in terms of luck. Purely by luck, Peter happens to be passing at just the right moment to clearly overhear a conversation that two of his senior colleagues are having. As a result, he gets to hear that the firm will be making 5% budget cuts this year and so believes his proposition on this basis. The thought is, well, look, clearly it's a matter of luck that um, uh, Peter is in the epistemic position he is, is in, in terms of his evidence. But given that he's in that epistemic position, that he's able to exploit that evidential position and gain knowledge is not, that's not down to luck. So there's a, there's a, Unger has a nice way of putting this. He says that... The relevant kind of luck that we want to eliminate is the, is the luck that interferes, he says, interferes betwixt belief and fact. He says that's the kind of luck that's the problematic sort. Not the, the luck in the initial conditions is okay. And that's what you've got here. Now, you might think something like this is going on in water. You know, so there's a way of reading water where it's kind of lucky that people have the, the basis that's giving rise to their belief. It's sort of lucky that they're in that, that basis. And so that's why it's benign. It's benign because, well, it's just a case of evidential luck, given that you've got that basis. Well, uh, no harm then in you coming to exploit that basis and coming to have knowledge. But there is a crucial difference between water and over here. In the over here case, we're imagining that our subject, Peter, is able, given the evidence, to epistemically exploit that evidence in such a way as to come to have a route to knowledge. It's completely different in the water case, because the water case is stipulated that uh, if you were to be in the different conditions where you've got the uh, adulterated water, in those conditions you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. So you'd still carry on believing uh, falsely that you're drinking water, even though you're actually being poisoned. So you, you are, it's stipulated that you're not in a position to epistemically exploit. the. You know, you've got the good fortune of having the, the, the right kind of uh, a basis for your belief that it's water, but you're, you're not in, a, in a, the position to exploit that the way you can in the, in the over here case. In the over here case... You know, if, if, uh, if Peter didn't have the evidence, he would believe differently. In this case, the different evidence, the different basis for belief, as we're equating them now, would generate a different, would actually generate exactly the same belief. It wouldn't be sensitive to the, the shift in, in, uh, in, the, in the fact. So I think with the case of water, to, if you're going to read it charitably as a case of knowledge, you've got to somehow think that what's lurking in the background is the mistaken idea that this is a benign epistemic luck in play here, something like evidential luck. I think as it's described, it isn't like that. Of course, you could reconstruct it so that it is, and then you'll get the claim that it's knowledge. But then, of course, it wouldn't then be a counterexample to, to safety. 
A trickier case is exhibit two, uh, Dima on the handout. I think it's a nice example. It's basically a Frankfurt style case, right? So I guess you're familiar with Frankfurt style cases where uh, standard view about free freedom is a necessary condition for free action is that you could have done otherwise. Well, in Frankfurt style cases, you couldn't have done otherwise because something would have intervened to prevent you had you done otherwise, but you did freely choose what you did. Uh, and this is meant to motivate the thought that free action is consistent with being unable to do otherwise. You've got something like that going on here. So I'll read it out. A demon wants our hero, let's call him Chris, to form the belief that time is 8.22 and it comes down the stairs first thing in the morning. The, belief does, the demon doesn't care whether the belief is true. Since he's a demon with lots of special powers, he's able to ensure that Chris believes this proposition, e.g. by manipulating the clock. They suppose that Chris happens to come downstairs that morning at exactly 8.22 a.m. and so forms the belief that the time is 8.22 a.m. by looking at the accurate clock at the top of the stairs. According to the demon, it achieves what he wants without having to do anything. So it's like the Frankfurt case in that had things been different, there'd have been an intervention. But as it happens, there was no need for intervention. The agent did as, as they were meant to. Again, it's meant to be a case of knowledge, but unsafe. I think we should resist... So what I want to say here is, first off, I want to resist the claim this is knowledge. I mean, I think actually one way of motivating that thought is to recognise that what you've effectively got in the demon case is a stop clock. I mean, it is basically a stop clock, right? Because you know, if, if you looked at any other time, it's still going to say 8.22. It just so happens that no one's interfering with the clock to make that so in the, in the actual circumstances that you're in. But it, 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 from a modal point of view, it is a stop clock. But nonetheless, I think what's playing around with our intuitions here is the fact that there's something, there's something epistemically good about the way the agent's forming their beliefs, given that the, the demon didn't intervene. And I think the explanation of what's going on here is that the cognitive success that the subject is exhibiting in forming that belief, given that the demon didn't intervene, is attributable to their cognitive agency, or at least to some significant measure. It'd be different if they'd intervened. But given that they don't intervene, I think we would we'd say, well, look, it's down to their cognitive endeavours that they're cognitively successful. And on most views, that, on most views of what constitutes an achievement, that would mean that it constitutes a particular kind of cognitive achievement. Right? The thought is that, roughly speaking, cognitive achievements are where you've got a cognitive success that's attributable in some significant way to your cognitive agency. So in that sense, it'd be like, a lot like the Frankfurt case. You know, the fact that you couldn't do otherwise doesn't undermine uh, your agency, in this case, your exercise of agency. Nonetheless, I think, given that you are effectively looking at a stop clock, given that you're forming beliefs that it's only a matter of luck, that you've got a belief that's true, we should be resistant to the idea that, therefore, it's knowledge. But what the, the, the knowledge is coming apart from cognitive achievement here, from the... Uh, the, the manner in which your cognitive success is attributable to your cognitive ability. This is precisely what we would expect, given what I said earlier about how the anti-luck condition and the ability condition are marking different, very different things. I mean, basically what you're doing is satisfying, to some in, in, uh, interesting degree, the ability intuition. It is, to some in, uh, in significant degree, down to your cognitive agency that you're successful, because the demon didn't, in fact, intervene. But nonetheless, the anti-lock condition isn't there, which is a distinct condition, because it, uh, your belief doesn't have, your cognitive success doesn't have the right kind of modal profile. It's a cognitive success that could have easily been failure. There's too much epistemic risk in play. 
Elsewhere, I've talked about this in terms of a particular kind of veritic log, which I call in environmental epistemic log. So it's knowledge undermining, but it's, it's, the, the thought is that the, the, the epistemic luck is it's not the intervening sort you normally get in Gettier cases, where something gets in the way. What you've got here is it's just purely in the modal environment. And you can bring this out. I've got a, a series of papers that I've written with um, my colleague, Jesper Kallstrup, where we, we run these what we call epistemic twin earth cases. And the thought is that what you do is, um, uh, across the, the two cases, you keep fixed the actual environment that the subjects are in, so the, the things that they, they're causally interacting with stay the same. And their, their normal environment stays fixed as well, so there's things that they normally would causally interact with. Or you vary across two cases their modal environment. And the, the utility of this is you can then run various views about the nature of abilities and so forth, various virtue theoretic accounts of different types. And the thought is that Although these kinds of these ability accounts will have conditions in them which make them variable, their manifestation variable depending upon environmental conditions, there will always be environmental conditions which relate to the, either the actual environment you're in or the normal environment. There won't be conditions which relate to the modal environment. I mean, the manifestation of abilities just isn't like that. Uh, I mean, to take a mundane case, think about playing piano. Uh, playing piano when you're underwater is a very specialized ability. It's very different from a normal piano playing ability. But playing, playing piano in conditions where you could so very easily be underwater, but you're not, that's not a specialized ability. I mean, I'm assuming you don't know this. It's not a specialized ability. That's just your normal piano playing ability. So what you can motivate there is the thought that even that you, just because you haven't met the luck condition doesn't mean that you're therefore undermined in terms of your manifestation of cognitive agency. And I think this is a general point. I mean, here we're seeing the cognitive analog of it. But the point, I think, is entirely general. Yeah, I'm nearly done. I'm nearly done, yeah. Uh, third case uh, is a familiar case, um, which I won't read out, uh, but because actually it, the, the details matter not that much. I can give you it abstractly, which is originally put forward by Zygzebski, but it's been, it's, it's been rediscovered by Church, who has, uh, Ian Church, who has some various papers which exploit this kind of case. The th here, this is different from the other cases. The other cases are examples of unsafe knowledge. This is meant to be a case where you don't know, and where you don't know because your belief is luckily true, but nonetheless your belief is safe. So the challenge is, well, wh why isn't safety explaining why you don't know in this case? It should be, but it isn't. Now, the case is so described, and you'll have to trust me on this, given I'm not reading it, it doesn't quite work as it stands, because it's only... Basically, it's only targeted at uh, safety formulated in terms of the belief that P across worlds rather than the more broader formulation we're going for in terms of epistemic error. So although the agent in this case will not form a false belief that P, which P is the belief they actually form, they aren't going to form the false belief that P across nearby worlds, they will be led into epistemic error given the way they're forming their belief. So the example so constructed doesn't quite work. But... I don't think that matters, because we, we can just rejig the example to illustrate the point that it's meant to show. I mean, really, all you need is something like... I mean, basically, you've got something like the temp case, but what you've got here is the proper exercise of agency, and you've got safe cognitive success. But what you haven't got, uh, and what's built into the, the example, is the right kind of relationship between your exercise of cognitive agency and the safe cognitive success. So what it is that's ensuring in this, these kind of cases that you've got safe cognitive success has nothing to do with your exercise of agency, and entirely due to just some incidental feature. So in this case, you've got um, 
you know, there's some a mimicking going on in terms of the, the conditions of the, the patient. So, of course, we can always construct cases of that sort. There's nothing to prevent us constructing cases of that sort. But this isn't, what I would say to cases like this is, we shouldn't think that the knowledge that thereby results is, is lucky. There's nothing lucky about it. I mean, given the way we've set it up, the agent's guaranteed to be cognitive successful. Rather, what's gone wrong is the, is a different condition that we should lay down knowledge, which is the, this ability intuition, which is the, the manner in which, when we know, our cognitive success has to be significantly attributable to our abilities. That's where cases like this go awry. So it's a misdiagnosis to think that the problem here is luck. It's not luck. The, the belief is safe. It isn't knowledge. But the reason it's knowledge is down to the ability condition, not the anti-luck condition. And then we could probably, we could probably just bracket the fourth. The fourth case is a familiar kind of case. I mean, Kripke has a version of this in his Nozick Russian lectures. Golden's got a version. Lots of people have different versions. I've, I've, I've gone for a very specific scenario, which is a real, actually a real scenario. This really happened, which is a nice way of getting your intuitions clear if you take a case that's real. Uh, children often, you'll find, those of you kids, go through a phase where they can, uh, they can identify your car, but they can't identify cars. <laughs> right? I mean, it's Alexander's one of my sons. You know, he went through a phase. He can identify our car really well, but he classifies as cars all kinds of things that aren't cars, you know, all kinds of vehicles that you find on the road. So if he tells you that he's seen a car, well, that's not really a good basis for believing this car. But if he tells you he's seen, you know, I mean, in this case, I've picked uh, Vauxhall's Fair, which wasn't the car in question, but the car in question was a Ford car, KA, so it gets confusing. This is the car we drive now. But if he were to say, I've seen it as a fear, that would be an excellent reason of thinking, for example, that there's a car outside. And you can generate various puzzles here, because if there's a safe route to him knowing that it's a Sephira, and he knows his fear is a car, then how can it also be true that there's no safe route to him knowing that it's a car, given that he misclassifies cars? I think the, the key to these kind of cases is to keep the basis. Remember, you've got to keep the basis fixed. So what's true is that he has no way of, of telling just by perception that there's cars. But he has a route to knowing that it's a car insofar as he, he reasons from the fact that it's a Zephira. Just like we could. You know, we could reason there's a car outside from the fact that he thinks there's a fear is outside. But we couldn't reason from the fact that he thinks there's a car outside there's a car outside. OK, so I'll stop there. The, the, the purpose of all this is knowledge and safety, that debate, that there's a utility in stepping back, thinking about what we want from an anti-luck condition. And I think this gives us a way of navigating through some of these, uh, some of these cases, which isn't just simply a matter of weighing up cases. It's a way of trying to cast light on what these cases are eliciting in terms of the, the very variable intuitions. Thanks very much. and the extent to which the bad outcome is present in the, in the modal neighbourhood? Well, well, clearly they're going to come apart, because, I mean, lottery cases illustrate this. I mean, you know, insofar as... Uh, so, 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 I mean, just take a standard lottery case, 14 million to 1. So, as I said, it's, this isn't the could-be-you of, of, of likelihood, probabilistic likelihood, it couldn't be you. But, but still, it's very close. Not much needs to change to win the lottery. I mean, this is why... Even if you think playing the lottery is irrational, it's not irrational in the same way that putting a bet 
on uh, something with similar odds, which happens in far-off worlds, is irrational. You know, putting a bet on, I don't know, me running faster than the same boat in the next week or something like that would be probably the, the kind of long, probably 14, maybe longer than 14 minutes or one, I don't know, something like that. But it's also the sort of thing, lots would need to change in order for, for this to occur. It's a world very unlike this world where I'm capable of such a thing. So you'd be crazy to put a one pound bet on, on that. But I don't think you're, you might be, still be irrational, but you're not as crazy to put a one pound bet on the lottery. Because, well, it's true, it could, it could be you. There's a sense in which it could be you. That's so they come apart. What I think is interesting is that people's judgments are tracking the closeness. You know, in cases where they come apart, they, their judgments stay very fixed. To the, and this is, this is a point which psychologists make. It's just a familiar, they just take that as a familiar point about our judgment. You'd, you have to, I mean, although people are massively irrational, you'd have to attribute an even a further layer of massive irrationality to them if you didn't attribute them to that. And also, it comes when you ask people questions about why, often people can specify that. They, they, don't, use, they don't talk in the technical way that we talk, but they talk about, you know, in a sort of counterfactual language, about closeness of error and, you know, what needs to change, things like that. So they, so they, they come apart, and our judgments are, are tracking the modal aspect, not the... Not the, the prob not the probabilities, as in the lottery case. Yeah, this is about the sort of hybrid anti-luck virtue of cosmology that that you were yeah. talking about. Uh, it seems to me there's a there's a danger that it's going to have some very weird structural features. Um, I mean, so suppose that, that P is is, one, is some proposition where where we have the the safe the safety, but uh, we we don't have a significant exercise of cognitive abilities. So it's mm -hmm. so it's by these standards, it's not P isn't known, and and suppose Q it is a case where we have safety and and we do have um, very significant. Exercise of cognitive abilities, so so Q um, is known, and now it seems to me that at least on the natural way of reading this, we, we would we would know the conjunction P and Q because um, the cognitive abilities are playing a very significant, relevant role because because they've got this massive role in connection with the the second conjunct and. And so it looks as though you get cases where, where you, you knew P and Q, but you weren't really in position to know P. Okay, so, but, yeah, okay, that's interesting. Um, we could say, I mean, I, I guess what I'd want to resist there is the thought that we would say that the significant, I mean, that insofar as the significant levels of, uh, of ability in regards to the, the knowledge that to suffice for knowledge that the one proposition that therefore it would follow the significant levels for the conjunction. Yeah, but I was I was deliberately setting it up so that the, the that their significance was way above the threshold for the second conjunct. So that's, so I wasn't depending on the assumption that if they're significant in relation to the. The conjunct, then they would also be significant in relation to the conjunction. I, I was, just, as well, I was. I mean, they can be massively significant, <laughs> and and then if if you know in relation to the second uh, conjunct, and so if we're just if we're just doing some kind of, uh, well, as you put it, significant ex 
extent, but not necessarily primarily attributable. But I mean, it's it's hard to see how how, how you'll avoid cases of that kind. But I'm not seeing how that works. So. I mean, think about how the case. So we now have to we now have to feed in the knowledge of the conjunction into that. So we'd have to say that your safe cognitive success with regard to the conjunction is attributable to a significant extent to your cognitive abilities. But I, I don't know why that would go through the just go through the one conjunct. No, but it, it's. I mean, it, it, it may be that there's some. Um, you know, you could tell some other story. Of, uh, um, I mean, but if you just have this notion of significant extent, um, it seems to me that the the story about um, safety with with respect to the conjunction is going to, is going to give a big role to the, the cognitive abilities because of of their role with respect to one of the conjuncts. So uh, you know, unless you provide some, you know, some further story about, about some special thing you're going to mean by significant. You know, I, I, I think it, you're liable to these sorts of cases. I mean, of course, you, you know, you, you could try to, to rework the, the notion of significance, but, you know, I, th I think it, it would be, wouldn't be a straightforward matter at, at all to... Yeah, I mean, I, I'd have to think about this. I, I, I'll just off pat, I'm not seeing how... I mean, it seems to me that if, if it only went through the one conjunct... I mean, this is my first response. I might change my mind later. It seems we wouldn't think that... Because what we want is the, the attribution relation to go to your belief in the conjunction as a whole. So if it's only as regards your belief in the one conjunct, I think that would be a reason to think that you're, it's not a true, your belief in the conjunction isn't attributable to your cognitive yeah, but, but you say here that it, it doesn't have to be primarily attributable to the cognitive no. abilities. I mean, if, you know, if, if it was, as it were, the cognitive abilities were doing everything, then clearly they wouldn't be doing everything in this case. But if it's, if it's just that, um, that they're playing you know, some highly non-trivial role... Then, in the kind of examples I'm talking about, they are doing that. Okay, I'll need to think about this and go. I mean, yeah, okay, I'll need to think about it. Thanks, that's a good example. Thanks. Hi, John. Just another thing about the hybrid. It feels to me, I mean, if you take a case that you think as a counterexample to safety, it doesn't take much imagination to get another case where you tweak it a bit so you have significant. Uh, significant cognitive ability uh, going in, but where the intuitions are undisturbed. So suppose we have a case A, exhibit A, we have a, a, a thermometer that isn't very good, but we look at it and we read it and some benevolent guy uh, looks at what we're thinking and then tw tweaks the, or looks at the thermometer and then tweaks the temperature to make it match. And then you're gonna say, well, that's safe, but wrong direction of fit or whatever. So exhibit B, it's not quite like that. It's the, the temperature, the thermometer, it's still a bad thermometer, but the way it works is instead of giving a reading, it gives a math problem like, you know, square root of, cubed root of uh, 81. And then what the benevolent guy does now is not look at what I believe, but look at what the math problem is and then tweak the temperature to match the answer to the math problem. Right. Now, that does absolutely nothing to mean to change my sort of judgment, but obviously you've got to be awesome at math to, to, to be safe with regard to the temperature in that case. Oh, that's a nice example. Okay, so um, 
And you get the idea. That's I get the idea, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let, let, me, let me brew these ones over and come back to you. I mean, difficult to come up with an example off, off the top of my head, but um, I get a response off the top of my head, but let me think about it. That's a nice case, I like that. So, you're exhibiting a lot of ability in solving the mass problem, and it's in virtue of that that the, the reading is made true. And there could also be cases, I guess, where the demon is monitoring you and make, waits until you've, you've done some praiseworthy cognitive <laughs> ability stuff and, and then only yeah. then will, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> will reward you. <laughs> OK, this is good. All right, OK, I'll think about this. I might come back if, 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 if the brain kicks in in time. Yeah. So I, I have a question about the framing of the project. Um, and I know you didn't go into the whole project, so maybe this is why I'm confused. But so I'm wondering what sort of work the anti-luck intuition is supposed to be doing for you. And I wonder this because so you didn't say anything in, in favor of safety. As far as I could tell, that people don't generally say in favor of safety. Right? I mean, you just said what safety is and what intuitions it's supposed to capture and what and, and you know the, the whole thing about modal neighborhood I mean you know, that's what that's what's going on in safety. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then once you sever the idea of um, a cognitive ability acting in accordance with believing in accordance with a cognitive ability from believing in in a non-lucky fashion, which I think is good to sever, um, then it's even less clear what the, the anti-luck intuition is supposed to be doing for you. So I mean, you could have a different project, which isn't your project, where you say, look, anti-luck stuff, this is the fundamental intuition, and therefore we need um, this virtue kind of yeah. thing. But you're not doing that, so you're just saying, there's, there's a safety condition, but oh, there's this direction to fit these potential counterexamples, so let's put on another condition, which is this virtue condition. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, just wondering what's, what you take to be going on. Okay, good. Uh, thanks very much. So, on the first point, um, it, it was meant. To, this was meant to be different from the usual safety debates. So, so the thought is, it's not just simply, you know, here's a couple of principles, and then we will let them do battle and throw out a bunch of cases, see what happens. The thought is that by thinking about the nature of luck and what we're looking for in anti-luck condition, we 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 end up. We, it's not just we end up favouring, for example, safety over sensitivity in this particular case, but we end up with a particular way of thinking about safety. So this was the, you know, the ordering one, you know, the tolerance of error idea. So the thought is, once you, once you feed that in, then certain problems just disappear. So I think certain problems that are posed for safety, they're only problems if you just simply think, well, here's a principle and here are some formulations of it. They're not problems if you think, you know, go for the formulation which is suggested by a particular project. So that, that's, that's kind of what I was trying to convince everyone of. Um, and then the, the second thing, now you're quite right, this is an option, right? Once you start, once you have this divergence, that, that is an option. I take it that what so Sosa is up to is exactly what you're specifying. So Sosa now has the view that knowledge can be lucky uh, in, in the Vritic sense. So it, what I'm calling environmental epistemic luck for him is compatible with knowing. And that's a theory-led idea, right? I mean, I mean, he's quite explicit about this. I'm not being mean to the guy. This is how he expresses it. The thought is, well, look, you've got this way of thinking about the relationship to knowledge and virtue. We thought we could sort of capture all of our anti-luck intuitions with it, but it turns out we can't. 
but the, the, the theory, as it were, is, uh, has such power, and it explains so many things, it fits it, which is true, it fits it with lots of our ways of thinking, not just about in epistemology, but just more generally in terms of what he calls performances. So it's a very attractive picture. Um, and it fits in with various ideas about normativity and epistemic normativity and so on. So he says, well, you know, this is just a, a pro one price you can pay is go the other direction. So, yeah, the three options here. I mean, once you, once you differentiate them, you can you could go down the robust anti-lock view and say, well, maybe these abilities aren't... Maybe that's, that's the bit that should be jettisoned. Or you could go down the ability, the robust ability view, the virtue view, and jettison the bit of the anti-lock intuition that gets in the way. Or you can do what I'm doing, and try and you know, thread a course through the, through the centre. I wasn't suggesting that you go another way. I was just suggesting that starting with... It, it's easier to make sense of the idea of, start, of framing the project in terms of anti-luck anti intuition if you go one of those two ways. And let me say a little bit more about the safety thing. I mean, when people talk about safety, they don't just put down this principle and say, let's see how many uh, cases it gets right, especially compared to its common rival sensitivity. They say things like, uh, you know, beliefs have to be safe. Knowledge has to be safe from error. You know, you couldn't easily go wrong. Um, you know, these yeah. kind of things, right? So it's not just like there's just this principle there, right? That people talk about the nimodal neighborhood. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. possibilities, right? So, I mean, it's fine if you want to say that um, what's going on there is some kind of intuition about luck. But of course, there are lots of other ways we use the term luck in epistemology, which, and you brought up some of them, which don't match onto this, right? So a common complaint amongst for, for in, amongst internalists is that uh, you know certain kinds of externalistic conditions like naive reliabilism about justification is is uh, posits a, makes whether you know something lucky or not right um, so it's just not clear to me that we have this antecedent grasp on the kind of luck that you're talking about that helps us uh, you know make more sense of safety than than we have for maybe it does for you I just yeah, I mean, so that, that was the point about it being this master intuition, that it appears everywhere. You know, the, the, the thought is that it's governing all of our thinking about in, in this domain anyway, something like this intuition. So it, I, the, there are lots of things that govern our thinking about, you know, there are lots of in, in epistemology. So the thought is that it's not just one of, amongst many. It's meant to be something which playing some very fundamental role. I think that the fact that it, it does appear in a, you know, you know, the first page of most textbooks and crops up again and again and again, here, there, and everywhere. And often, in fact, is stated, you know, it, it, it's just it, it's implicit in other statements of other things, reveals that it, it, it's playing a bigger role than just simply one amongst many constraints on, a, on epistemology. But you don't think it's the master intuition in the sense that you think there's this cognitive ability stuff that cannot be captured by considerations of life. Well, no, I mean, I, I, my view is that they're, 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 these come down to the, the two master intuitions, I think, about now. I think there's two. Uh, but, I mean, of course, that, that's a, this is a difficult game to win, right? The, the, you know, whose, whose intuitions are the big intuitions, sort of, whose, whose intuitions win. What, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do with this, though, is it's different from, from that particular game. It's the, it's the idea that you can then put this, to, put this to work. So this is why I made that point about predictive power. You know, so simply coming up with a bunch of delineated different kinds of epistemic luck, well, in and of itself, you know, here's one list, maybe another list would be possible. But the thought is, that, but suppose you can then go back to cases where people have disputes and say, well, look, here's what the, here's what the dispute rests upon. Cases are underdescribed. And if you spell it out one way, you go this direction. You spell it another way, you go another direction. And then you can, so you've got predictive power. 
you've got a way of casting light on, on, something, on a dispute that seems intractable. And I think that's the kind of thing that you can do with this. And that's kind of what I was trying to show here, that it isn't just simply, you know, we, we, with any debate of this sort, you can always, there's different ways of specifying, you know, dis different ways of, of chiseling a principle to get it to deal with this problem, then trouble with that problem. So the thought is, that, well, is there a better way of doing this? And I say, yes, well, there is a better way if you step back and think of it in terms of this anti-luck intuition. So that, that, that's what I'm trying, that, that, that's what I'm trying to convince people. So, well, I've got a question that follows up on, on some of the earlier lines of questioning. One move that um, uh, proponents of safety sometimes make in response to counterexamples is to say the relevant notion of closeness that figures in the safety principle isn't really, can't be understood independently of the notion of knowledge. So if someone gives me a purported counterexample in which I know that P, that P is false in a close case, the response is no, the, the, relevant case, the case is not relevantly close. Um, um, I'm wondering, can you not make a similar sort of move in response to some of the problem cases where the, the idea is, okay, what's, what's a significant extent? What counts as um, cognitive success, which is attributable to you to a sufficiently significant uh, extent for you to have knowledge? The thought would be that can't be understood independently of knowledge. Um, so basically the invitation to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. is this too cheap a move or is this something you'd be... Um, Okay, good. First, I should say about the significant extent. Of course, this is a weasel word. It's a weasel, like the word "relevant" or something that appears. You know, it, it, it's a, it's it, it's almost like a blank check. But the thought is that when you spell this out in ways, it, it gives. So the thought is, you don't want it, you don't want it, you don't want a greater level of specification in your account than the phenomena allows. I think so. Uh, so I think it's inevitable you'll have an account of something like that that sort. But there are ways of precisifying that with particular cases. If I went into it, I could say, you know, why some cases don't count as significant, why some cases do count as significant. Uh, so don't think that, the, you know, that it, it's that easy. <laughs> so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, and I do talk about this elsewhere, you could, one route is the knowledge first route on this. So in the, the book on the nature of value of knowledge, I have a section on this where... It, it's, it's relevant to that book because, uh, if any of you have come across it, it was, it's written by three of us, and the other two, certainly one of them, anyway, Alan Miller's section, is a knowledge, is a knowledge, trying to develop a knowledge-first virtue epistemology. And I think probably the third contributor, Adrian Hadwick, would be, would be sympathetic to that too. And I think, uh, so it was quite a, crucial to, to, to my uh, contribution, which is the first place I explore this idea, to say how it, how it connects. And this is certainly one option. I, th I think it's even... So you could go down the safety... You could do it to do with safety. I think it's even more attractive to do it with the virtue element. So it's very difficult to come up with accounts of epistemic virtue which aren't ultimately circular. Because often the, the best way to think about epistemic virtues is, is kind of ways of knowing. <laughs> or at least you understand them relative to ways of knowing. That's kind of the paradigm case. So... That, that very naturally lends itself to March 1st. But, but again, you could even do that with the anti-luck condition. Uh, I'm trying to resist that, not because I'm resistant to knowledge first, but just because, you know, insofar as you can make headway on this without going down that route, then I think it, it's more attractive to the greatest number. But, yeah, that's certainly an option. Yeah, Daniel? Yeah, uh, so, so maybe it's more point about the way you, you formulate safety and the way you think about safety. So you, um, so there is this. You, you notice that the way you formulate it, safety is relative to a, a particular proposition, and 
So you look at closed possible words. The only closed possible words relevant are those in which uh, you believe that proposition. But so there is there are uh, there is this other way of, of formulating say that that's been floating around for for a while, which does not have that feature. So I think I think Mark Sainsbury was the first. To, so you said that we have to understand the principle as basis relative. Anyway, so so if you have that, if you have a ba the reference to basis, you can say that as as belief is true, uh, sorry, as belief is uh, safe, um, sorry, as belief uh, formed on basis B is safe just in case, as couldn't have easily formed a false belief on basis B. Yeah. And that way you would get um, as unsafe, say, you know, um, a mathematical belief that is intuitively. Uh, you know, lucky because you know I, I just uh, choose the, to believe in uh, you know flipping the coin and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, so, yeah. don't you think that that formulation has sort of an advantage of you know being more general? And yeah, absolutely. I, maybe this didn't come across clearly. I mean, the, the formulation that's there is kind of like a starting point. I was just throwing that out as a formulations people tend to offer. The eventual formulation is the one. That I do offer is, is the, precisely of the kind that you're imagining, and the, the rationale for moving from that to this is that we should focus on epistemic error and not fixate on just the belief that p, because that's is it kind of it's incidental that that basis led to the belief that p the actual world. What we're interested in is does this basis, is it at risk of epistemic error in closed worlds? And simply fixating on belief that p across worlds won't capture that thought. So that's that, that's the move. So so the thought is to motivate that move in terms of an anti-lock epistemology, that was an idea. Sorry. Um, OK, so I have a question about direction of fit in cases where facts are brought about by means of performative utterances. Um, so it seems like if we have someone whose speech is lawmaking in a certain domain yeah. and they say it's illegal to buy, then it becomes illegal to buy. And we can also suppose that like, whenever they form a normative belief, they articulate it and that this is reliably the case. So this seems like a case definitely in which um, like the direction of fits from belief to world rather than vice versa. But it also seems like a case in which the success of their belief is plausibly due to an exercise of their cognitive ability. So it seems like a case maybe where these two notions come yeah. apart. No, uh, excellent. Yeah, no, I, I think somewhere I do have a footnote on this, but it's something I need to get back to. There are these odd cases like that. And I need to think about what to say about them. I mean, of course, they are odd cases. Right? I mean, it's very unusual that it has that feature that, you're, that one is able to legislate in that way. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's a very nice case. Thank you. So some of this was covered, I think, with um, Amia and also with Declan. But I mean, in this, in this dialectic, there's the move from robust to modest anti-luck epistemology because the thought was that the anti-luck condition needs to be supplemented by uh, a virtue condition. Yeah. And then you might try to use the virtue condition to make your anti-luck condition redundant. Yeah. It would be, a, I guess, a, a perverse, robust anti-luck epistemology, right? Way, because the ability condition is going to do the work. But then Exhibit 2 was introduced as a way of trying to undermine these accounts that sort of say, well, once you have ability, you get anti-logical free. And I, I like the way you responded to Kelp, because, I, I mean, the diagnosis that this is a stopped clock case is pretty convincing. Yeah. But, but by the same token, I thought that this is a case in which the demon does seem to do something, which is it undermines the ability for you 
it undermines the opportunity under which you have the ability to determine whether it's 822 by using an instrument. So I thought there's a straightforward way for the ability people to say you're right on about this, that this is not a case of knowledge because there's a sense in which the demon has deprived you uh, of the circumstances under which the opportunity to, to use your abilities to determine correct opinion. Um, and I think this gets down to the proper interpretation of, of attribution, because I think, I think maybe in some of the ways you were understanding attribution, it was in a, in a, in a kind of weak way, or something like result, consequence, or something like that. That opens you up, of course, to the direction of fit categories. And if you understand attributable maybe in a slightly different way, then you might be able to, to deal with both these problems from the same thing. Yeah, OK, good. I mean, I, I was thinking the attribution thing is um, an explanatory way. So it plays some significant explanatory role. Uh, just going back to the exhibit two, I mean, maybe the, the distinction there is, is in terms of how you characterize the cognitive success. So if you're just talking in general terms cognitive success, as I did, then I think it's OK then to think that your cognitive success is you know, significantly explained by agency. But what you said was quite interesting. You've kind of, I, I take it you could narrow down the relevant, so you're not just simply talking about cognitive success. You're talking about uh, the specific cognitive success, not just of finding out the correct time, whatever, but of finding out that it's 8.22. Now, presumably, that what explains your cognitive, that particular cognitive success might not be down to your ability, because it's down to the, the demon, maybe. And, and, and I think you get a lot of cases like this where, in fact, this crops up a lot in the virtue literature, where you get conflicting intuitions. But what's happened is that subtly people have shifted the thing that is to be explained. You know, because the, the very same event could be described in a different description. So one always has to be careful with this. So I think if you stick to the way I described it, then you get that result. But I think you're right. There's a more narrow description of what's going on there where it, it wouldn't be. Um, but, that, but of course, that, that would still suit me, because it's still not knowledge, right? <laughs> it just it wouldn't be either condition on that view. Yeah. But, but yeah, no, that's interesting. Thanks. Um, this is maybe a little bit similar to Tim's case, um, except with the disjunction instead of conjunct. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking, suppose you have P or Q, and how Q or Q are related, right? One's lucky, one's, uh, you know, but the, the other one's safe. You know, one's creditworthy, the other one's not, kind of in the opposite ways. You might think plausibly, if one of the disjunctions is safe, the whole thing is, and uh, similarly for kind of the creditworthiness. But it sounds odd to say that the whole thing is counts as knowledge if neither of the the disjunctions kind of fully. So my hunch is it's not going to work. It's not going to be so worrying in the disjunction case, but maybe that's just a bad instinct. So I don't know. I'm either either I'm holding a cup or I'm Napoleon. Is that, that that's what you're sort of thinking? So I've got excellent reason thinking there's a cup because well, I know you want something true. Right. Don't you I'm wanting one of them to be safe but not creditworthy, yeah. and one of them to be creditworthy but not safe. Um, and then the whole thing, it looks like, will be both, I think, will be both creditworthy and safe. Um, but it's not so good. Because you often know a disjunction and, and don't know it. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah, often you do know a disjunction without knowing either of the disjuncts. Um, but it seems like, in this case, there's maybe not the right sort of causal story to tell about how you get to this disjunct. They're not exhausting, like, a set of possibilities that you've got to definitely narrow it down to or something. Um, I mean, the other thing that's different, I mean, are we, are we thinking of... Someone, how are they coming by their belief in the disjunction? Are they? Because in the conjunction case, it's pretty clear. You know, yeah, they, mean, they, they know each conjunct, so they, they know both conjuncts. In the disjunction case, why are they believing the disjunction? Uh, maybe you're thinking they've just kind of logically 
you know, they've done logical addition on either one. Oh, okay. Um, but but in this in the case they've done it to a belief they already kind of have stimulated by something that is either credit worthy or safe, whichever one uh, the realm belief is. But would it, I mean suppose the so suppose you start off with P and then you you know you do disjunction introduction and get P P or Q. You and you know P because you've got it's safe and it's attributable to your agency. Or uh, I think the way of setting up is P is either safe or attributable, but not both. And then Q is is the inverse of that. So it's. Does that make sense? But with, uh, so if P is safe, Q is not. If P is attribute, you know, like credit worthy, then Q is not. But um, they're like they're opposite of each other. So uh -huh. one is one of each. And then the thought is your belief that the disjunction is both safe and creditable to your agency. Right. Why is it creditable to your agency? I mean, let's suppose the case where P, so, so, so Q can't be credible to your agency because unless we're thinking of it as your route to your, I mean, because you don't believe Q, you believe, if you start off with P and then you believe P or Q, so you don't actually believe in Q. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I think both P and believe in Q. Yeah, I'm thinking you, you do it from, from P, right, you do comma Q to P or Q. <laughs> you're, you're doing some kind of weird, yeah, it's, it's unclear why you would <laughs> yeah, do this yeah. logical addition, but, but it seems like you, you could and be both maintain the safety and the creditworthiness of the beliefs. Um, yeah, I'll, I'm not getting the case. I'll need to think about this. Like, so the time case is supposed to be safe without ability. So you believe the temperature is 20 degrees. And then you have a justified false belief. You believe that you have a full cup in your hand, but in fact it's false. But this is maybe like satisfy some ability condition, and you infer that either it's 20 degree or I have a cup in my hand. And you think it's cool because there are two reasons why this conclusion is false, but it's true. So you, you sort of supporting it on both sides, and then the idea would be that the conclusion then is both believed out of ability and safe. Right. Okay. Does it, doesn't it have to be that the fact that the belief is safe, not just the fact that you believe it, but yeah, yeah, the yeah, fact it that it's safe, safe yeah, has yeah. to be attributable to That's right, cognitive yeah. ability? I feel like this might help. Yeah, well, with some this is why I, I also think that, but I can't quite reconstruct. I mean, at least in a case where you like have good reason, you, you know, you do a hard math problem and it's P or something, or maybe not. Don't make it math; make it contingent. Yeah. And then you just like infer a, uh, you know, you infer P or Q where Q couldn't easily have been false. Yeah. Uh, it feels like you could still say something like, well. You know, on that basis, I could have also believed P or uh, R, where yeah. you know where R was false. So, like the same basis could easily have led me to a yeah. false belief. Um, so, yeah, yeah the no, fact that I safely believe P or Q is not attributable to my cognitive. Ability. Yeah, I feel like the conjunction. Yeah, that, well, that, that, that's what I thought. But I, I'd like to sort of sit down and reconstruct this properly. That, that's kind of my hunch because it is kind of crucial. The way it's formulated, that it, it isn't just simply the conjunction of conditions. Because if it were, you could very easily create problems for it. Mm. It is very much that the safe cognitive success is attributable to agency. Um, when we talk about these, when I talk about these intuitions as being you know, separate master intuitions, it invites the idea that they're separate conditions, epistemic conditions. But actually, really, that's, that, that's a misleading way of thinking about it because they're, they're intertwined because it's the safe cognitive success attributable to the agency. 
But I'll need to. I mean, I, to be confident that it does deal with this case, I need to sit down and work them through. But that, I, my, I, that, that's my hunch too, actually. John, did you have another one? There's a, a little thing. In, I wanted to hear a bit more about this thing about your diagnosis of lottery, which is things would have only had to be a little bit different. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, just, here's one way lotteries are drawn. You know, you have a ticket with. 20 digits and then Mr. or Mrs. Lottery dips hand in a ball in a, in a bowl 20 times and picks out a number and then puts, you know, puts 20 in a row. And let's suppose none of them match, none of the balls match your numbers. You know, if you, if you ask ordinary, and, but you know, I haven't looked. In fact, none of the, the draws happen. None of the balls have matched my numbers. And then I ask someone, you know, supposing None of the balls match. Would things have had to be a little bit different, a lot different for you to win? They'd think, well, have to be a lot different. I mean, I think that it's, it's very telling that, I, I presume it's the same for all lotteries, but certainly the British Structural Lottery, they, 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 they make it very, the closeness very visual. You know, the, the, the ball's just sort of fluttering around, and then, you know, and then which one falls into each slot. It's just very close. Uh, of course, they could do it the way you describe. I think and it's telling. They often do. I mean, they do. It's, do they? It's I not know. like <laughs> in the states where they do it that way. People think they've won the lottery. Lost the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even in retrospect, they. Do yeah, I mean, I think so. Presumably, my my hunch is this: that uh, the 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 fluttering way of doing it. You, people are more likely to buy tickets if they if it's like that because I think it's going to feel closer. Than the, the, the picking. Well, you, you agree things would have had to have been a lot different to, for you to win if every single ball. Is well, it, of course, it's difficult to make these judgments in any precise way because, of course, we the balls in the in the in the tank. You know. I mean, you agree that if I asked a thousand people, my question, they'd say yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the balls in the tank is closer than the case that you were well, They need to go to philosophy class to learn closer. Well, I yeah, just ask, would, th would things have had to be a little bit different or a lot different yeah. for you to win? I think things have to be more different. I think people would judge that it's more different in that case than the, the national lottery, British national lottery case. But I don't know whether, whether that would detail that things have to be a lot different. We might, yeah. So, so just maybe I didn't get it right. So you're thinking of just people standing in line. So how many numbers are there? So there's what the six. Well, there's one person, and they draw out, you know, they draw out a ball, oh, and then one? write down a number, and then draw out a ball again, right? You know, something like that. Oh, okay. Uh, you know what I mean? So that there's, as it were, oh, so it's like a tombola or something. One for each digit on your. And people will intuitively think if if nothing matched, I mean, people will say, what well, you know. Sometimes I was like, oh, in retrospect, oh, if it had just gone a bit different, I would have, you know, won. And sometimes, but if nothing matches, and you ask, like, ordinary people, they'll say, wow, things would have had to go on a lot different for me to win. And that's just what they'll say. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure about that case. I mean, I was thinking when you first described it, it'd be a sort of, you, you separate the events in some, some way. So, you know, day one, the number's drawn, and then, you know, day two, someone else comes along and draws it, and then the day two, or something like that. And I could imagine that would play havoc with people's intuitions about it. And probably people, my guess, would be less inclined to buy lottery tickets for that reason. Um, but it, whether or not that really does make... more inclined to think other people that knew they lost. Yeah. 
Well, of course, as long as it's still, there's still error in the, in the neighborhood, I mean, that's all that's required in order to, to defeat the node. I mean, so. you're using this technical language. I'm just trying to get a feel for <laughs> yeah. it. It's, it's sort of quasi-English. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you yeah, don't yeah, ask yeah. ordinary people questions in this. So I'm trying to well, connect it with... So, but the thing is, this, people have asked these questions. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of, of research on this kind of thing. And it does make a difference. How you think of the lottery <coughs> does make a difference. So it, it, it is deliberate that they do it like that. I mean, I don't know whether the, that particular way of doing it is, is, is evidence-driven, but... The idea that you, it's very important how you present the lottery is definitely evidence-driven, because it has a bearing. How you present it has a bearing on how people's judgments are made. And what, you, what they're trying to do, although they don't put it in these terms, is they're trying to give the feeling that it, that it could be you feeling. They want that's the feeling that people people to have when they play the lottery. So, yeah, you could test these things, and I suspect it would make a difference. Whether it makes enough of a difference that people are then going to start thinking that it's like a case where you're betting on me beating, you know, it's, obviously it's not going to be, it's not going to make as much of a difference that people think it's like betting a pound on me winning the 100 metres at the next Olympics, right? But, so it's not going to be that far out, but of course as you, as you move it out, then people, I think people's judgments, you're, that, it, that it's just a matter of luck, start to change. Uh, last question from Danny. Um, I know that with, with you know, we, if I understood you correctly, your um, reference to angers, you can be lucky to have evidence and still be yeah. safe. Yeah. So I was wondering if you can be lucky to have an ability and then your beliefs still be safe or knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you can. I, I, I actually think for it. It's capa- I call it capacity epistemic one. So it could be lucky that you have the capacities that you... I mean, Unger actually has a case like this in that paper of his. Um, where I think, if I remember rightly, there's in most ne- oh, he isn't near, nearby worlds, but you you very nearly get hit by a branch that would blind you, and it's very lucky. You see, he doesn't. It's difficult to rephrase. Anger does it all in terms of accident, but I think that's the wrong note. I mean, just just to give you a sense of why I think it's the wrong notion. You know, my parents played the lottery. They picked the the numbers is because of the grandchildren. They go out the way to buy a ticket every week. If they won, it'd be a matter of luck, but it wouldn't be an accident. I think there's, there are important differences. But if you recast what Unger's doing in terms of luck, the thought, he has this example, if I remember rightly, of the branch that would blind you, and it's just a matter of luck that you're not blind. But given that you're not blinded, you have the capacity now to see something occur. And it's it's very difficult. I talk about this in the book episode, like to keep these kinds of benign epistemic luck apart, like the capacity luck, the evidential luck. There's other kinds as well. They're, 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 they overlap in various ways, but there are also ways of keeping them separate. I mean, you can see how they overlap, right? That you have the capacity is also often going to make it so that it's a matter of luck you've got the evidence you do because, you, it's, you know, because you've got your, your eyesight's working that you've got the evidence, you know. So, yeah, but I think that's it's compatible with knowledge. This might actually, given that the project's on religious epistemology, this might have some bearings on... Uh, on, on religious epistemology, if you think of the ways in which, uh, some, on certain views, how, because um, certain views think in terms of, it's a, you, it may be a matter of luck that you're in a position you've got certain capacities, but then that you exploit those capacities gives you a route to knowledge. Well, what about something that is clearly an epistemic vice, and then you somehow happen to land up in a, uh, a neighborhood where having the vice turns out to get you a whole bunch of safe beliefs? So, for instance, You've got an epistemic vice, which is you always believe the negation of what you're told. And then you end up, you, you get lost and you end up in the deceiver land where everyone tells you the negation of 
uh, true propositions, then you believe negations of that, and you you end up having true beliefs all the time. So you clearly seem to be having, you know, do you think it, even in that kind of a case where your advice would turn into a, a virtue? Well, it, I mean, it might do over time. I mean, in the case you're you're, you're imagining, um, it wouldn't be a route to knowledge because it, it it's not cognitive abilities, the different views and, and what necessary conditions there are, but on, on most views they've got to be reliable belief-forming processes. Now of course there are environment relative as well, so, and, and there's different views about how you do that. Uh, but I guess what would be going on in this case is over time you'd imagine someone, if, if they're remotely virtuous at all, so we managed to make uh, so two scenarios we can have here. One scenario is someone's riddled with vice. And presumably, they're in the bad of the scenario, they're not going to change their belief-forming processes, because that's what viceful people do anyway. But, but as it happens, they end up with lots of true beliefs, good fortune. Another kind of scenario where they're, they're mostly virtuous, but they've got this one vice. And then, presumably, over time, they would start to, they'd start to realise... So, as it were, they might start to internalise the fact that this is a, a good belief-forming trait to have, and thereby gain ownership of it as another virtue. I mean, so there's a very different... Yeah. So in doing so, you become a different belief-forming process, of course. Because what... I mean, you need to hear the... So they, they just believe... Was it they believe negations of... Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's not... I mean, that's not... When people think about epistemic abilities, they're not thinking of things of that fine grain, really. But uh, you could imagine a certain kind of cognitive trait not suited to the environment you're in, suited to another environment, but then becomes part of your epistemic virtue... It, in virtue of you being aware, you know, think of someone like Sosa, you would adopt a meta-perspective on, on the belief-forming trait, recognise that it's the appropriate way of forming beliefs. But then, of course, in doing so, it then does become one of your virtues. I, I, I think with these cases, by the way, it's better to, it's better to do it with, with examples of, of real abilities, <laughs> you know, rather than these, these notions, because they're... Yeah, I mean, that, 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 I wouldn't think of that as ability at all, actually. I think that's something else going on there. Okay, we better stop. Thank you so much, Doug. Thank you.